Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This is Relationship Radio, an extension of Marriage Helper International. Hosted by renowned marriage and relationship expert, Dr. Joe Beam, and the CEO of Marriage Helper, Kimberly Holmes. We answer your questions directly with research-based principles that you can implement immediately. Regardless of the situation, what we teach will not only make your relationships better, but will also help you to become the best version of yourself along the way. Be sure to subscribe to this YouTube channel and click the bell to be notified every time we release new content. Turn up the volume and prepare to take notes as we begin this week's episode of Relationship Radio. How are we supposed to go about understanding how to bring our spouses back and show them that we have changed? Yeah, I wish we had a very short, simple answer to that with some magic words. And then you could go do the incantation and all of a sudden it works. But it's not that way. Kimberly Holmes, of course, is our CEO here at Marriage Helper. And as we talk about this, understand that typically marriage difficulties didn't occur overnight. It took a while for those things to develop. Now, can they happen that rapidly? Yes, occasionally they can. But the questions we'll be dealing with today from the callers that have called in are not situations that occurred instantaneously. Actually, those are very, very rare. But things that happen over a period of time. And that's what Kimberly just said. So remember these two things as we go through this. If you want to resolve a marriage issue, two words that you must remember and almost use as an incantation, if you will, would be consistency and time consistency and time. Kimberly, we talk a a lot in our workshop, for example, and we won't try to replicate all of that here, about uh, Sternberg's triangulation of love. Uh, Sternberg is a great researcher, researches in three or four major areas, one of which is what is love. And without having time to explain all of that, basically Sternberg, Dr. Sternberg says that love has three basic components. One is called intimacy, one is called passion, and one is called commitment. Now, let me define those very quickly, and then we're going to talk about them. Intimacy has to do with into me see. In other words, I can be open and transparent and vulnerable to you, and you can also be those same things to me, vulnerable, transparent. We build trust based on that. We open ourselves up to each other based on that. I feel accepted by you as I am, not as you wish me to be. And the same thing's happening the other way around. It's reciprocal between the two of us. Passion has to do with sex, of course, but it's a lot more than that. Sternberg defines it as being a craving for oneness. It's what I feel at any given moment. And the more intensely I feel, the more passion I think that I have or feel that I have. And the third one, commitment has to do with either something you evolve into, like one day you just sort of realize, wait a minute, we've developed a relationship where I really want to be here. Or it could be an actual decision that you make. Uh, I've decided I want to commit to being with you. And while in one sense, commitment can be made one time and then you live it the rest of your life. In another sense, it really is made on a daily basis because of the fact that life can change. 
Now, Kimberly, we do a great uh, deal. I spend a great little time in our workshops explaining that more than we can do here. But when we think about those things, uh, we tell people that of those three, the one that can fade most rapidly would be passion. It can go away faster than the other two, but at the same time can often be rekindled faster than the other two. Those other two things take some time to do. Intimacy takes time to develop. And if it goes away, typically goes away slowly because each of you will reach a point where, well, actually can start with just one of you, where that you feel I can't be open. I can't be transparent. I can't be vulnerable. I'm not being accepted as I am anymore. And so that begins to fade away. Commitment typically does the same thing because I don't feel accepted. I don't feel loved. I don't feel I can be open and transparent. My commitment to you begins to ebb. It begins to fade away. Now, could either of those things change that fast? Yes, but typically they do not. And so they take a while to go away. Well, in that sense, Kimberly, based on what we tell people, if you're going to get them back, can it be done rapidly? Hmm. It cannot be done rapidly and definitely not as rapidly as many of our listeners are wanting it to be. (laughs) I know that many of you don't want to hear that, but we promise to always tell you the truth. The other thing I thought of as you were talking, though, was there's an assumption that intimacy and commitment were there in the relationship to begin with, or at least were there to the high the, the high level. I, Joe knows what I mean when I say that. There's actually a model and a test you can take to measure your level in each of these. And you can see it on a triangle. And so you can actually begin to see, am I a one or a nine in commitment, a one or a nine in intimacy and all of those things. But if we're even going to go back further, then if they didn't have that intimacy at first, if they didn't have the commitment at first, then it really doesn't change what they do because you still need to do the things that will lead to here's how to build intimacy and here's how to build commitment. And that ultimately is going to be what will attract your spouse to you. It would have been what would attracted them to you. It would have been what attracted them to you to begin with. But even if it wasn't there in large amounts, you still do those same same things to attract them back to you now. So it's the same solution, but I just know there's going to be people who say, but what if we weren't committed? What if they weren't committed to me? Is it hopeless? What if we never had intimacy? Does that mean we can't get it? And the answer is there is hope. You just have to do what you said, consistency of these things over a long period of time to see the amazing results. Right. You understand that. And that's a good point, Kimberly, that in cultures where that there are arranged marriages, which means that um, I actually met a couple of years ago. Well, actually, several years ago now that did not ever see each other until after their wedding. They had never met. And based on the way that they married in their culture, uh, the bride was in one part of the building or house. They actually did it in a house. And he was in a different part of the house. And they never even saw each other until after they were married. So he's over here. She's over here in different rooms. The officiant's here. And so they meet after they marry. Now, we would say that that one didn't start with intimacy, commitment, and passion Mm -hmm. because they don't even know each other. But in the cultures where arranged marriages exist, the divorce rate is actually much lower than in cultures such as ours in America, where people go through a dating process and wind up marrying. And so why is the divorce rate lower? Well, we can look at a lot of different factors, of course, but one of which would be that they do develop intimacy. They do develop commitment. And as a matter of fact, their commitment actually may exist even before they meet each other in the sense of their beliefs and values. 
and they do develop passion for each other. So you're right. Even if you think you had little of that before. Now, you may be thinking, though, well, I felt those things toward my spouse, but I don't think my spouse felt those things toward me. Then how do you develop that? How do you develop it? Well, we're going to go through that as we go through some calls today. But if I'm going to draw a triangle in the air here, we can just kind of imagine this. And so we put intimacy at the top of the triangle and let's put uh, commitment over here and let's put passion over here. Now, in the middle, if they all develop into the middle, it's what's called consummate love. That's what Sternberg calls it. And so the more intimacy you have, the closer to the middle of that triangle you get in the sense of more, the closer to nine that you get, basically. Okay. Then the more intimacy, the more passion, the more commitment. And so if those things don't exist now, can they be rebuilt? And we're saying yes, but there's not a magic way to do it. It's going to be developing a relationship over time. Now, Kimberly, the questions we're about to listen to have to do with people, though, who had something before, but now they've lost it. Like my spouse doesn't trust me anymore. Uh, My spouse is still basing what he or she thinks of me over the way that I behaved before. And how can I show him or her that I've changed in these ways? So is that possible? Yes, it absolutely is possible. Some people may be listening to this and thinking, okay, I, I get that there's a, there's these three components of love intimacy, passion, and commitment, but still, how does that have to relate to showing them I've changed that? What, what do I do? What we're going to be talking about as we answer these is we're going to show you, here's what you do as it relates to building intimacy, restoring passion, deciding to have commitment. And I believe on the front end, the commitment is just going to have to come from you. You're going to commit to doing this and to making it work because you can't force your spouse to stay committed or be committed to the relationship, but you're committing to do these things and, and watching how they work and staying the course. That's what you have to go into it with the mindset of right now. Exactly. And don't be expecting things from your spouse that he or she is not willing to give right now, because you might be wanting them. Well, I want them to open up and be transparent and vulnerable. And and how can I make them do that? Well, we recommend you don't try to make anyone do anything because that is what can backfire on you in major ways. So do we have a foolproof plan that if you do exactly what we tell you to do, it's a hundred percent guaranteed to work? No, because as Kimberly said earlier, we won't lie to you. That's for those people out there that just want your money. (laughs) If you just say what I tell you to say, do what I tell you to do, then they're going to come back and they're going to love you the rest of their lives and want to have sex with you every day and all that kind of stuff. And you, as well as I, all know that that is hogwash. From the deep south, that's a word for us back then, hogwash, which means it's ridiculous. We could use a, a more current term that still refers to the farm. It has to do with a certain animal, male animal. But that's what it is. It's terrible advice. But we can show you what to do. Okay, Kimberly, you usually summarize at the end. And so why don't you see if you can summarize all this? Here are the key takeaways from how to show your spouse that you have changed and hopefully attract them back to you. The first thing we talked about is that to really understand how to attract a person back to you, it's helpful to understand what love is. It's comprised of three things, commitment, intimacy, and passion. Passion is the quickest to fade, the quickest to grow. 
it's the, it's the finicky one of the, of them because it can change more over time. But right. the two that really make a difference right now for all of us and all of you listening to the podcast is how do you build commitment and how do you build intimacy? At first, you're going to build commitment by committing yourself to doing the things that will help bring your spouse back. The things we teach at Marriage Helper, the things we talked about in this podcast. So you commit to being consistent and doing these things for a over a period of time. That is the best way to build commitment. And then for intimacy, that's what you really want to start focusing your actions on. So how can you build intimacy? First is make small steps towards positive connection and communication. So the small things that you can do, the how was your day, just listening to the small bits that you can, those really help to start building that intimacy, but you can also work on doing things to become more emotionally attractive. So ask yourself the question, how can I evoke emotions within others that they enjoy feeling? How can I evoke emotions within my spouse, my husband and my wife that they enjoy feeling? And automatically when people hear that question, they begin to course correct themselves. Oh, I I know things that I have been doing that have definitely been pushing them away and not evoking good, good emotions. And I know some things that I can start doing. You can always go back to that because it's something you have control over. Your behaviors and your actions are the only thing you have control over. And then the final part is to stop doing the things that have led to this disconnection in your relationship and start doing the things that will lead to rebuilding love, rebuilding commitment, intimacy, and passion. But you start by doing the small steps. You can go out there and look on the internet and find things about it. As a matter of fact, like any other topic, type in the word on Google and all of a sudden 95 million responses pop up in seven seconds or less, well, maybe 0.7 seconds or less. And yet a lot of people who talk about limerence are actually just quoting Tenoff from back in the 70s. And she was brilliant. I mean, she opened the door. And so we give her kudos. But there's been a lot more research since then. And we at Marriage Helper wound up working with situations with couples or I should say individuals in limerence with another person repeatedly. Therefore, in the last 25 years, we have worked with couple after couple after couple where at least one of those spouses has been in this limerent relationship, quote, madly in love, end quote, with someone else. So we have a quarter of a century experience in dealing with it, have done our own research about it, as well as continually staying on top of the other research that's out there. So let's talk about it. If your spouse believes and says vehemently, I am in love with someone else, not you, is that a valid kind of love? Is it what people call true love? Does it mean that your marriage is over? Or is it this thing that we refer to as limerence? Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Beam with Marriage Helper, along with Kimberly Holmes. Kimberly is our CEO, the guru that leads our whole organization, and uh, my boss. So I have to be very careful what I say because I'm doing this program with my boss. So Kimberly, when it comes to this thing called limerence, I know that we get asked about it so often that sometimes we just want to talk about something else. <laughs> and yet it's out there. It is rampant. And and I get invited to come to even to marriage counseling centers where there are sometimes 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 marriage counselors working out of a center with their degrees from all kinds of different universities. And none of them ever were taught about limerence when they were in college. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there are some people out there who still claim that limerence doesn't exist. And yet the research is ample and fascinating. Plus, 
we've had experience with so many people over the years. I mean, decades of people with this thing that we identify as limerence. So why do you think it is that some aiming counselors or therapists have never heard of it or perhaps think it doesn't exist? <laughs> You're asking someone who, of course, was trained as a marriage and family therapist. That's how I started my master's degree. And you're you're right. I mean, that did not come up in the time that I was in my marriage and family therapy program as something to address. But here's what's crazy about that. When you look at the reasons that people divorce, I mean, clearly we know the, the research from Gottman that says top three reasons is because people don't feel liked, loved, or respected. But if we look at the actions that occur from that, that lead people to, to seek a divorce, we're seeing consistently in the top three spouses, physical infidelity is always there. So this is something that no one talks about, but many, many marriages are experiencing. I think we have known this before anyone else, because we knew that 67% of the couples who have come through our workshop, there has been an affair or currently is an affair when they're going through it. So all of that to say, I don't know. Well, I think the reason that it's not taught is because it's not something easy to deal with. It's not just a theory that you can put in front of a student. It's not, it's not easy to deal with, easy to work with. But unfortunately, counselors and therapists are going to see a lot of this in their office. But like you and I know, they don't know how to deal with it. We've had counselors and therapists tell us maybe they have a success rate of one out of 10 couples that they deal with when an affair has affected their marriage, where we have more than 70% success rate in working with those clients and actually would say, this is the, this is the kind of situation we have real confidence in being able to help because we have so much experience. You said that one of the most quoted people is Dr. Dorothy Tinoff because she found it. I believe you will be number two on Google of people quoting you about limerence because you have been talking about it for over a decade. I mean, now it's kind of a fad. Two, two and a half decades I've been talking about it, yeah. Yeah, now it's becoming more mainstream, but you have been researching limerence when it was still obscure and no one knew what the word meant. Right, but now there are a lot of people on Google who know all about it. <laughs> Always be careful about that. That was sarcastic for those who can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive the sarcasm. Forgive the sarcasm. But there are situations where that affairs occur, and we know that infidelity is rampant. We live in a culture where it seems to be accepted, almost as a matter of fact, expected that you know he or she or maybe even both of them are going to wind up cheating on the other at some point. Uh, to the point when I was teaching in a local university, I taught human sexuality for eight years at a local university and, and would explain limerence when I'm talking about sexuality and, and uh, realized I was telling my students too much when a couple of them said, we now are afraid to get married. <laughs> it's going to be all terrible. Well, no, no, don't be afraid to get married. But it's something that we get a lot of questions about. So let me explain something very quickly about it before we get to our questions. I am currently writing a book about it. Hopefully, we'll be finished uh, sometime before too very long. At least that's what my boss lady tells me, by the way. And mm -hmm. so writing this book about it, we talk about in the book three phases of limerence, the first of which is I call infatuation. And that's how people go from not being in a limerent state to being in a limerent state. And it's similar to infatuation 
in other kinds of love. Then there's a second phase that I call crystallization, actually using that phrase from a guy, a French writer back in the 1800s who was trying to explain something. He was a novelist who wrote a lot uh, about, in his novels, human psychology. And I got the word crystallization from him because it actually identifies what's happening there. And in the third phase, we call deterioration. Now, I'm not going to be able to explain all of those in great detail here, neither will Kimberly, but understand that in, uh, that infatuation happens first and then crystallization and then deterioration. Now, as we go through that, don't think that it goes just like this because their emotions, they go all over the place, okay? And so they're not linear. They're moving all kinds of directions, but definitely three phases. And because of the work of people like Dr. Helen Fisher, who is a biological anthropologist, who when people identify themselves as being madly in love, actually did some fascinating kind of research, including if. MRIs, functional MRIs, where they get a series of pictures of people's brains. We even have some understanding and knowledge of what's happening in a person's brain when they are in a limerate state. Uh, without going into further detail, because we don't have time in a podcast like this, it has to do with the fact that dopamine increases. That's an ecstasy chemical that your brain produces when you're thinking about the person that you're madly in love with. And serotonin decreases. Now, there are other chemicals as well, but we'll just mention these two. And serotonin has a calming effect. And so basically what happens is this, when you become this person madly in love, and we use the word limerence to describe that with someone else, then there are spikes of dopamine, but they're coupled with the serotonin loss, which has to do with the fact that you become more afraid and you become very afraid that the relationship is going to end. Fear intensifies passion. And so therefore, if when that other person responds positively to me, I had these spikes of dopamine, it's like, I'm in heaven. But then if I perceive anything that he or she does as moving away from me because of that lack of serotonin, that goes down. And my fear intensifies like, oh, no, maybe she's moving away from me. Maybe he doesn't want to be with me anymore. And so you're going through this ecstasy, agony, ecstasy, agony. But because the ecstasy is so powerful, you don't tend to remember the agony. <laughs> as soon as you're back in the next ecstasy again, like the agony just went away, what was I thinking? And so while it's miserable in that agony phase, because of your hypervigilance, you're watching everything the other person does. And so ecstasy, agony, based on your interpretation of what they do, what they say, all those kinds of things, limerence then, even in phase two, is an up and down kind of thing. Yeah, from, from joy to terror and everything in between. Now, there's a much better explanation of that, but we don't have time here to get deeper. Hopefully, that gives you a picture. And because we talk about it in our um, podcast and because we have videos on it, as a matter of fact, on youtube.com slash marriage helper, we have hundreds of videos about all kinds of things concerning marriage that are free. You can go access those things. We talk about it there a lot as well. Now, in our workshops, we can get into it in much more detail. Now, obviously, we can't in these videos and podcasts and things like that. But based just on what we've explained to you so far, hear this. It is considered to be a kind of love. But based on the research of people like Fisher, Dr. Fisher, we know that it has a 
shelf life. It typically is going to last somewhere between three months and 48 months before it goes away. Occasionally, it may go past 48 months, but there's but that occurs so rarely, those are called statistical outliers. In other words, it happens so rarely, you can't even count them. You who have listened so far and you are saying, this is what my husband or my wife is going through. I'm going to share this podcast with them so they will awaken to their senses and understand that they or just fallen victim to limerence, don't. Please do not share this podcast with a spouse who is in limerence. They will not hear it, and you will do more harm than good in restoring your marriage. Mm-hmm. Once, a few years ago, a wife did share it with her husband. He looked at it and said, that's me. And then they came immediately to one of our workshops. We helped him save the marriage. Once, (laughs) once since 1994, when we first started teaching about this, typically people react like, no, 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 that's not me. The kind of love I have is not that. It's a different kind of love altogether. And so it just makes them defensive. And that's why we're recommending that you try to understand it, but don't try to teach it. The key takeaways from today's episode, limerence is... A big word, but it has a lot of components that go under it. We have a lot of material where you can dive deeper into what exactly that means. But our encouragement for you, while we understand that you are seeking to know everything you can about what's going on in your spouse's mind and how to fix and save your marriage, don't get so stuck on limerence that you don't do the things to begin working on you and move the marriage forward. Because... Whether your marriage has been affected by limerence or not, the things we teach you are going to be the same of what you need to do. So what are those things? Stop doing the things that have pushed your spouse away. Start doing the things to attract your spouse back to you. Focus on working on your pies, the physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual attraction, and do the things to build intimacy slowly over time with your spouse. You should listen to the episode before this one, or at least we recorded it right before this one, but it's going to be episode number nine of Relationship Radio, How Do I Show My Spouse I've Changed? Even though you may be thinking, I don't need to do that. My spouse is in limerence. We give so many good points in that episode of what to do. You need to go and listen to that episode because it's exactly what you should do in this situation as well. How often do we understand that if you don't have marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction at the same time, that one's going to negatively affect the other? It's true. The research definitely indicates that as well as the research you've done personally in getting your PhD and your dissertation from the University of Sydney. That yes, a lot of times the people are struggling with something sexually, but it's impacting their marriage or they're struggling struggling with their marriage and it's impacting their sex life. They seem to go very much hand in hand. Oh, yeah. And the research over decades done in many different countries in many different situations found that marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction rise and fall together. Now, we can't document exactly which one is causing the other. Is it the marital satisfaction more often affecting the sexual or the sexual affecting the marital? And that probably is situational. Way back when I was a freshman in college, my mentor, Paul Torrance, would tell us everything that happens outside the bedroom affects what happens inside the bedroom. And everything that happens inside the bedroom affects what happens outside the bedroom. Well, Paul taught me well back all those years ago, and I have read the research as, again, ample 
ample research indicating this to be true. And yet at the same time, we find people contacting us all the time asking questions about sex. And I think maybe some of that's because of the fact that people know that when I studied to get my degree over in Australia at the University of Sydney, that it was uh, studying both those things, marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. So, Kimberly, what else do we need to say in preparation for some of these calls we're going to be talking about today where people are asking questions about sex? Any other basic principle we'd like to talk about to begin with? I'd like to ask you a question. Sure. So, So which one do you believe is more important? That's just it. We can't tell from the research. And therefore, I do think it's situational. I think that it's whatever is most important to the person at the time. And maybe they're so interrelated that you can't really ever separate them to begin with. That that trying to figure out which one has more effect on the other is that they're so symbiotic that you can't really figure that. It's like the bees need the honey from the flowers, but the flowers need the bees to be doing that so the flowers can make more flowers. Well, which one is more important? Well, Mm. they're both extremely important. I mean, both are being fed and taken care of by the other, and you can't really extract one from the other. And I think that's the case. Unless you are in a marriage where you don't expect sex to occur, and by the way, uh, by the way, I think here in the USA, the last time I saw the numbers, which has been a while, but the last time I saw the numbers, about 3% of marriages in America have never been consummated, indicating that they've had no sexual contact, at least when it comes to what's called uh, PVI, penile vaginal intercourse. And so at least 3% of, of the marriages in America, based on those numbers from a few years ago, have never had that. But then there's a couple of other statistics. We find that uh, in a research done at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, a really well done uh, research done through the auspices of the University of Chicago, that when they studied people in America between the ages of 15 and 59. Now, these were people who were married. Now, not many 15 year olds are married, but some are. When they studied these people and, and again, 59 being the cutoff age, they found that there was a category called low sex marriage and a category called no sex marriage. No sex meant that they were making love to each other or with each other 10 times a year or less. And those were called no sex marriages. And then from 11 to 25 times a year uh, was called low sex marriages. Interestingly, they found that 20%, 20% of the married people, these were married people, 20% in that age group, again, stopping at age 59, were in that no sex category, meaning having sex with each other 10 times a year or less. And that another 15% were in the low sex category, people making love to each other 11 to 25 times per year. So a little over a third of married couples in America are having sex with each other less than twice a month. Now, and in a majority of them, less than once a month. And you say, well, is that a big deal? Again, if they're in a situation where neither one of them wants to have sex, that's called being asexual, by the way, that should be okay. But very, very few people, proportionally speaking, are asexual. And we live in a society that's extremely sexual. It's in the movies. It's on the television programs. It's in the articles we read. It's everywhere. And therefore, most people are expected to be sexually fulfilled in marriage. So which one is more important? If you don't want sex, marital satisfaction. If you want both, it's hard to tell. Hmm. So what are the top three things that lead to healthy sexual satisfaction in a marriage? 
Well, for people who present with sexual problems, like they come to a sex therapist or a counselor, the number one thing they present with that's a difficulty is uh, different levels of desire, which leads to different desired frequency which means that sometimes he wants to have sex more often than she does, or sometimes she wants to have sex more often than he does. And, and when those things are far enough apart that, uh, that is causing some difficulty, that's what leads people primarily. That's the number one reason that brings them to sex therapy. It's like, I want sex more than he does, or I want sex more than she does. And, and the other one is not uh, trying to comply, not trying to help out. Another is that the different level of desire can be quite different between males and females. For example, there's ample research that indicates, now this would not be true of all women, but that for many women, they don't even begin to feel sex desire until they start to get aroused. And so a man might be thinking sexually, and that desire is what he's feeling, which would lead him to want to have sex. A woman might not be thinking like that at all. Now, some women do, I must understand. But once she starts uh, interacting with her husband, once they start kissing, hugging, whatever, then as she starts to become aroused, then her desire comes about. And so it's been indicated that with many women, they really can't differentiate between desire and arousal because they don't really feel desire until they start being aroused. And so if you look at that, differences in frequency, differences in desire, those are kind of the two big ones right there. The third one would have to do with the relationship itself. So when I did research a few years ago that you referred to, and I asked people what had significantly reduced their sexual attraction, and another question similar to that, sexual satisfaction with their spouse, by far, with women, the ones that answered the question, and by the way, one out of every three women gave at least one reason. Uh, one out of every four men gave at least one reason, so more women than men. And the number one with women was uh, having to do with relationship dissatisfaction. I'm not happy with the relationship. And then uh, pretty high, not necessarily number three, four, or five, but it's pretty high up there, was um, lack of romantic, for lack of a better word, ability, meaning that uh, our sex is not very good because my husband is not a very good lover or my wife is not a very good lover. But more women reported that than did men. The first key takeaway is to remember that everything that happens inside the bedroom affects what happens outside the bedroom and everything that happens outside the bedroom affects what happens inside the bedroom. And so many times when there are sexual issues within the marriage, especially if the issues are not just physical, then that means we need to look at relational. So what are the things that we can then do to make the relationship better so that the marriage will be better? Listening to each other, focusing on not trying to fix the thing or fix what they are feeling, but the process of staying in love, growing deeper in love, learning how to have a really healthy and strong relationship is there's a lot that goes into it. And that's one of the reasons that I believe what we do, especially in our workshop, our couples workshop that we offer is so powerful because we teach all of those things. And I believe it is the best thing that any and every marriage could and should go through multiple times throughout their years of being married. So definitely check that out as well. The second key takeaway 
takeaway that I have from today's episode is that sometimes there are physical issues. Sometimes there are physiological issues with hormones or with neurochemicals in our brains that really need to be addressed by a mental health provider because it is affecting our sex life. And so if that is the case, then go to a doctor because nothing that we say is supposed to be taken for medical advice. So be sure to go and check with one of your physicians and see what kind of things that you could get on or speak with your spouse and encourage them to go see their doctor if you think they might be having an issue because that can help work wonders. And then the third key takeaway I have from everything that we've talked about is to remember that the real source of attraction comes from within yourself. So instead of just trying to, to wait until your spouse says or does something towards you to make you feel attractive or make you feel sexually attractive, focus on what you can do to realize that you are worth it and you are good enough inside of yourself. First and foremost, the person that you hear more than anyone else is yourself inside of your mind. So begin to say better things about yourself and not just that, but begin to do things that will actually help you feel like you are accomplished, that you are moving forward and that you are attractive, focusing on the physical, intellectual, emotional and spiritual aspects of it. We hear people say it all the time. We tried to reconcile, but it's just impossible. We had difficulty in our relationship. We were separated or estranged. We got back together thinking we can do it. And then it didn't work. You know why? Because they didn't know how to do it. Oh, they were sincere. They wanted to. But if you don't know how to do it, it's almost always going to fail. So Kimberly, we work with thousands and thousands of couples. And you know, as well as I do, how many stories we hear of couples who thought they were reconciling, but in actuality they weren't. How does that happen? Well, I think it happens in a, in a couple of ways, but one of the main ways we see this happen is where couples are saying, okay, so my spouse moved back in, or a lot of the couples we work with, there's been an affair. So maybe they're saying he ended or she ended the affair. Therefore we're reconciling. So they're really taking that just because something stopped, that something has started but that's not true. They're actually, those are two different things. Your spouse could come back or you could, you know, at least say, we want to work on this, but there's still more you have to do before you're actually reconciling. Just living in the same house does not mean you're reconciling. Right. And calling it reconciling doesn't make it reconciling. There's a problem uh, yeah. to go through. That's right. You can, call, you can call a hamburger a salad all you want, but it's still... A hamburger. Well, that's exactly what I do. And that's why I keep gaining weight. <laughs> Salad making me fat. So we look at this and go, hmm, is there a way to do this? And the answer is yes. But understand that it's a process that should probably not be done rapidly. Now, we're not saying it's impossible to do it that quickly, but we're saying it's exceptionally difficult to do so. We often talk about it like this. People sometimes think it's just like jumping into the deep end of the pool. Since we know each other, had a previous relationship, we know how to swim. But there are now hazards in that deep end of the pool that have occurred because of your difficulties. And you don't know where all those hazards are, even if you think you do, in all likelihood. And if you dive in, you're going to hurt yourself. And so we say, rather than just jumping in wholeheartedly, there's a process. So wade in from the shallow end of the pool. Just take a step at a time. And sometimes there'll be a couple of steps back, sometimes a step to the right or a step to the left. But it's the process. And we have worked out that process and helped many people work through it. And so if you're going to reconcile, Kimberly, does it require at the outset 
that we have decided and committed to reconcile? Or can reconciliation actually start before that? Very good question. Reconciliation can start before both people are committed to it, but it does at least take both people being willing to explore reconciliation. And this is where a lot of people get hung up as well, where they're wanting to reconcile. So one spouse is wanting for the reconciliation to happen, but the other spouse isn't there yet. And they're not even willing to consider it right now. If that's the, if that's the circumstance, you're not reconciling. You've still got to get your spouse to come around to that. There's a different thing you can do at that point, but also doesn't have to say I'm a hundred percent in for you to be reconciling either. There's this, there's this middle area of it. Mm -hmm. It's a process. And even if the other person says, okay, I'm willing to consider reconciliation, that process has to be followed because if you go too quickly, The other person gets scared off like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can handle this. All right, Joe. So we have talked about a lot having to do with reconciliation. But one of the key things we keep coming back to is, are you there yet or are you not? So my final question that I want us to leave the the listeners and watchers with is, how do they know if they are actually reconciling or not? Okay. That's actually a, a very, very good question. Unfortunately, it has kind of a nebulous answer. In the system that we teach, the E system, this is the E step, explore, explain, engage, etc. In our system, you don't even make a decision until you get to here. But if you've gone through all of these principles, the way that we teach you to do, if you've gone through these phases and steps, the process, because we're all about processes. If you go through that process, then when you get here, you can make a decision. If you decide, nope, We're not going to work this thing out. We're going to go our separate ways. At least at that point, you know exactly what you're walking away from because you figured it all out right here. If you decide, you know what, we'll do this. Let's reconcile. At least now you have a plan. You know how to do it in a way that is workable, a way that's doable. So technically speaking, until you finally make a, a firm decision one way or the other, technically speaking, you're not reconciling. Yet, at the same time, just by going through the process, You've actually done part of the reconciliation work. So that's one's kind of a nebulous answer. But at some point, you either commit, I'm in or I'm out. But we ask people, before you make that decision, follow the process. So either you know exactly what you're walking away from or you know what to do to make it all work. Then, Then you can be so much more confident in your decision because it's not just based on what emotion you feel at the moment, whether it's anger or fear or lust or whatever it might be. It's based on emotions, obviously, but a whole lot of good work and logic that's good for each of you. Here's what I would also leave the listeners with. If you're in a situation right now where you're saying my spouse is unwilling, if you feel like you they are unwilling or you do not feel comfortable approaching them about doing something with you right now, then that doesn't mean there's no hope for you. We actually have a whole course designed around exactly where you are. We call it the Save My Marriage course. And that, when you go through it, it will get you to be able to pave that foundation towards hopeful reconciliation in the future. But if you're at a point where you're saying, you know, my spouse is willing, we're talking, they're amicable towards it then the next step I would recommend for those people is our workshop. Because in that workshop, we are going to teach you and your spouse at the same time, not just opening your eyes to what has happened, but teaching you everything you need to know in order to move forward. And I know we've talked a lot in this this 
episode about exploring reconciliation, but that is really, it has more power in it when it happens right after a couple attends a workshop together. Mm-hmm. So that for that's how I would explain it to people listening. If they're saying, what do I do next? I would say, if your spouse is unwilling, save my marriage course. If they are willing, workshop followed right up by exploring reconciliation is going to be the best system for you to go through. And so let's sum up this episode. What are some key points, takeaways that you can have right now without any other thing but having listened to this episode? The first key takeaway that I have from this episode is that reconciliation is a process and it is similar to thinking about how you fell in love. It didn't happen overnight and it probably also didn't happen over a decade, but it happened over a period of time that felt natural and went with the cadence of what your relationship needed. So when you're thinking about reconciliation, put yourself back in that mindset of this is a process and I don't need to rush it. I just need to make sure I am doing the step that I am in to the best that I can while I'm in that step. Right. So another takeaway then that fits right directly with that is don't jump into it thinking you know how to do it. And it's just two people getting back together since we know each other and we're in love with each other once before. Therefore, this should be easy. Unfortunately, if that works for you, we're going to be very happy for you. But we have seen so many cases where that fails. So don't try it too quickly. And in the process, another takeaway is it's, there's going to be a time to ask the questions. And if you ask them too soon, it's more likely that your spouse will not tell you the truth or not admit his or her liability. There's a way to work up to that where that you can make it comfortable enough where each person feels safe enough emotionally and every other way that the truth can be discussed and you can talk about the issues. And that's the final thing we didn't have time to explain because we didn't have a specific question about it. You will at some point talk about the issues, but not drag it out over months or years. (laughs) That's going to work against you. You're going to talk about the issues. If you go through the process, there's a time to talk about the issues, but enough to deal with them, understand each other and then move on without camping there. What else should we say, Kimberly, as we come to the conclusion of this particular episode? Reconciliation is not always easy. And also, please don't get disheartened if your spouse has moved back in or ended the affair or whatever it is, and you still feel stuck. That's normal. Because like we said at the beginning, just because something has stopped doesn't mean that something new has started. And so as we're encouraging you to get started on this new path to reconciliation, remember that some of the first things you can do now today is figure out how can I emotionally connect in a positive way with my spouse? How can we just ask fun questions to each other and not talk about our marriage issues if we're not there yet? That is one great thing you can begin doing today that will help you towards reconciliation in the future. We'd love to help you. You can contact us through our website at Marriage Helper. That's marriagehelper.com or call our toll-free number that you'll see on the screen right now. We care. We want to do everything we can for you. We genuinely do care. Thank you, Kimberly, for inviting me onto this episode. Well, thank you, Dr. Joe. You want to save your marriage, but your spouse is making it very clear that he or she wants out. As a matter of fact, maybe they've already filed for divorce. Maybe you guys are separated, living in different places. Maybe if not divorce, your spouse has filed for legal separation or 
maybe has done neither of those things, may even be still living in the same house with you, but saying, nope, it's over. We're done. But you want the marriage to work. What do you do? They don't want it. You do. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Beam with MH International. This is Kimberly Holmes, who is our CEO, the one who leads us. And Kimberly, uh, what can we say right at the outset? Because all of these people are asking basically the same question. Because my spouse doesn't want this to work, Hmm. is there hope? And what's the short answer to that? Yes, there is still hope. There is absolutely hope. There is always hope. You know, we tell people that all the time, and sometimes they don't believe. Mm-hmm. But we've had many people, and and uh, forgive me if this sounds like I'm talking about something you're not interested in at the moment, but so many people have come to our three-day intensive workshop, and you might be thinking, don't even mention that my spouse won't come. We get it. But so many people that have come through that, where one spouse said, there's no way on earth we're going to make it. And yet through the years, more than 70% of those people have worked their problems out and stayed married which makes us very happy when you consider 80 to 90% of the people that walk in the door, (laughs) at least one spouse is saying, "Mm -mm, no way I'm out of here, that kind of stuff. And we're going to look at a few questions here. Listen to a few questions. I should say where people are asking about this and answer them and hopefully help you see that there is always hope. Kimberly, you may remember when I say I finally give up on helping a marriage. Do you recall? There are three reasons that you would give up on a marriage. Either the one one or both people have remarried. The second one is if they're they have died, passed away. Yeah, I'll give up then. <laughs> Pretty much a lost talk. <laughs> or the third is if a if one of the spouses is involved in a destructive behavior that they are unwilling to stop. Yeah. I don't know how to help put a marriage back that, like that back together without putting somebody in danger. And, and we don't want to put anybody in danger. Now, if that person were to stop, mm-hmm. we would say, yeah, there's still a possibility. And, and I think I heard you read a report the other day in one of our meetings that somebody who had been divorced six years. Yes. Is now coming to our workshop to see if they can put the things back together. Yes. They just, they and their spouse just started dating again and said, let's see, let's go back through this workshop and see if we can fix this. Six yeah, they were they're divorced. Yeah. <laughs> they were one of the couples that came to the workshop and it didn't help them save their marriage. They wanted to divorce instead. But now six years later are saying, well, now that we think this might make it, you know, they were teaching some pretty good stuff. Let's go back to that <laughs> and see what can help us do today. And and we love all kinds of positive stories. Now, we won't guarantee you that you can salvage your marriage because there are two people involved here. One is your spouse and he or she gets to make decisions. But we're telling you that the odds are extremely good that it can be done if you can meet certain criteria. I don't mean by that if you can find the magic beans that you can plant and climb up to the heavens and find the golden goose. We don't mean that. But certain things that if you do, definitely increase the likelihood. Before we end, we need to take our takeaways. What are the key takeaways from today's episode? The first one that I have. Yeah, that's your job, not mine. So you go ahead. Okay. Well, the first key takeaway that I have from today's episode is that if you want to attract your spouse back to you and make your marriage work, number one, realize that you're going to do it alone at first, but that shouldn't be so overwhelming to discourage you. It's just what it is. And it actually allows you to begin doing things now. You don't have to wait to get them on board or to agree to do something with you first. You can begin making changes now. And the first thing you can begin to change is by working on your attraction, your physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual attraction. 
It's the best thing you can do for you. And it's the best thing that if anything works to attract your spouse back to you, then it will work. And of course, you can go head over to my podcast to hear more about how to implement each of those things on a weekly, daily basis in your life. The second key takeaway that we have is right after that first step of the love path, which is attraction, the next step comes to acceptance. And this is the next thing that you can begin to do right now, no matter what situation your marriage is in, is to accept your spouse for who they are and where they are, even if you don't agree with what they are doing, because those are two different things. Mm -hmm. Side note, Joe and I did a podcast about that on my podcast, It Starts With Attraction, episode 44, when we talked about what is love and the difference between loving someone, but not necessarily always agreeing with or condoning what they're doing. So you can be sure to go and listen to that as well. But acceptance starts with you being a safe place. So as they begin to open up or as you talk, when those opportunities become available, be a safe place. Mm. Bottom line. And the third key takeaway from today's episode is that the best way to make your marriage work is by being together. So we recommend that you not separate unless someone is in physical danger or emotional danger. Then we recommend that you stay together and really think through the consequences and the long-term effects even not just with separation, but just everything you do, but especially when separation comes into play. Mm -hmm. And don't forget to put the kids into that as you do. Remember those three questions. If I do this, what am I trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. How likely is it I'm going to accomplish that? Or how likely is it that something else is going to happen altogether? Okay. Kimberly, great summary. Wow, you've got quite a brain in there. Just kept up with all that without writing anything down. I'm quite impressed. Thank you for being part of Relationship Radio. We look forward to talking to you every week on here. You can find our previous episodes right here on YouTube as well, right? Yes. Any place else that can find them? Wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a podcast and a YouTube show. So wherever you're listening or watching, be sure that you subscribe and leave a review. If you're on a podcast app, be sure you leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, then leave a comment. We love to hear from you and the questions that you have about Relationship Radio. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Relationship Radio. Please refer to the notes in the description to learn more about any resources mentioned in this episode. Please visit our website at marriagehelper.com for more information about our online courses, marriage workshops, and coaching. Remember to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. We exist to help save marriages and strengthen families. We look forward to interacting with you on the next episode of Relationship Radio.